you have your Bibles, if you can open to Job chapter 13. As we saw last week, Job has just heard from Zophar, the third of the three friends. It's been suggested Zophar goes last because he is the youngest of the three. As I said last week, figuratively, you can almost imagine him pacing on the sidelines, waiting to get into the game and to really give it to Job. As one writer put it, it is clear from his graceless tirade that he has been impatient to get at a man whom he once respected, but whose whining inability to recognize the danger he was in has canceled out any sympathy he may have had for him. One of the things that becomes more and more clear, becomes clearer, is that there is a total absence of grace in the speeches of Job's friends. That they are graceless is seen in two ways. First of all, in their speeches to Job, um, there is no compassion. There's no sympathy. There's no empathy. Um, Eliphaz blames Job for the death of his children. Bildad blames Job's children for their deaths. There just seems to be no grace. But secondly, in their speeches to Job, there is nothing about God's grace. Nothing is said about divine grace. And we shouldn't be surprised at that, because in abandoning Job, they're also turning their backs on God. As we saw in, uh, I think, chapter 5, verse 14, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The friends have a common theme. Job has sinned, and he knows exactly what it is he has done, and now God is dealing with him based on that sin that he committed it does not seem to occur to them that God is gracious and that he has been gracious to them. For them, it's all calculation. They fail to recognize that if God acted justly without grace, there would be no hope for them. Because in this first cycle of speeches, Eliphaz says no human is righteous before God. We would not disagree. Bildad says God never perverts justice. We would also agree with that. Then Zophar says that God certainly punishes every evildoer. This cause and effect, you will reap what you sow. But never is there a word of grace. That in fact, we do not get what we deserve. That if God acted only justly, none of us would be alive today. What Bildad hears from Job is hot air. What Zophar hears is blasphemy. And he's quite upset about this. And so when he speaks, he begins by violating one of the cardinal rules of debate, of argument, I would say even of just conversation. He speaks out of anger. He's angry with Job. And he allows his anger to push him into a corner of overcommitment. And once he is in this extreme position that he must now defend, He breaks the second rule of conversation, and that is he resorts to exaggeration. And how does he exaggerate? Well, for one thing, he misquotes Job. It's like, you said this. Job never said that. Job said something else, and Zophar has twisted it and exaggerated and blown it up into something that Job did not say. And then Zophar chooses to speak for God, rather presumptuous, one would think. And in doing so, he exaggerates God's justice, God's wisdom, and God's promises. And he calls Job back. Come on. Come on back. 
you empty-headed donkey, that's what he called him earlier, come back, all you need to do is repent. Devote your heart to him, stretch out your hands to him, put away that sin in your hand, and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. And again, on some level, Zophar is right. Repentance is necessary. But it's all calculation. It's all ritual. For Zophar, it's all black and white. Do what is right, keep the rules, good things will happen to you. Do what is wrong, break the rules, bad things will happen to you. Not a word about a relationship with God. Simply put, it's all calculation. So Job comes back, as we saw last week, with a renewed energy. If Zophar thought he would shame him into silence, he is sadly mistaken. Job comes back with two complaints. We looked at the first one last Sunday, and he makes two points. And the first is that he is just as wise as his friends. Um, If you look at chapter 13, verse 2, let me see. Where am I? Let me find where I am here. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Doubtless you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? They think that they are so wise that they have the answers. And Job's like, I know what you know. And he goes then a step further, beginning in verse 7, that even creation has the knowledge that these friends claim to have. If you look at chapter 12, verse 7, but ask the birds, or ask the animals, they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you, which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? It's like you guys claim to be geniuses, and listen, birds know the things that you're talking about. But then, this is the end of the first complaint, but in between there is this interlude on God's sovereign rule. Beginning at verse 13, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. And he goes on, the language might remember, right, might remind you of the language of the Psalms. And it appears to praise the reality of God's control over all things. But unlike what we find in chapter 9, Job's intention is not to produce a sense of admiration and awe or even of worship. Rather, it is to spell out, because now he's sort of drifted into their camp of calculation that God's power and his wisdom are worked out in reality. Now we come to chapter 13. This is the second complaint. Job has just, in this interlude, verse 13 to the end of the chapter, has given a critique of God's actions in world history. And again, he, he repeats his claim to know as much about God's attributes as his friends do. He needs no education. He needs no lesson from them, particularly because they've made two mistakes. First of all, they haven't listened to Job. And secondly, they have defended God's ways falsely. And in response to both mistakes, Job basically says, "Um, can you just be quiet? Just be quiet. 
And then he wants to speak to the Almighty to argue his case and to them as well. First of all, they have not listened to Job. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 13. My eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would all be altogether silent, for you that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the plea of my lips. You know, they are too busy talking and trying to straighten them out when in fact Job just wants them to listen. He wants their loyalty, their support, not their advice. Because in giving advice, they have distorted the truth. They've lied about Job. They assume that he's done some horrible, horrible sin. That's why this has happened to him. And they do more harm than they do good. Instead of healing, they are harming him. They are worthless physicians. How is it that Job views them this way? It is true that they have a theological explanation for his sufferings. Theologically, we can explain why these things have happened to you, Job. But if they wanted to be physicians of some value, they should have just remained silent. Instead, they speak of what they know nothing about. They're trying to put a Band-Aid on a life-threatening illness. And they do this because they have calculation, this simplistic formula, this algorithm, if you wish, of if you do these things, and this is what's going to happen to you. Um, wonderful verses and proverbs that I came across um, this week. A shout out to Mars Hill Audio Journal. Um, last Friday was on uh, Philip Reith. And at the end of his preface to his book, triumph of the therapeutic he wrote these two verses from proverbs a man of knowledge uses words with restraint and a man of understanding is even tempered even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue better to be quiet and thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt well that's what job is saying to his friends you know if you would just listen if you would just be quiet Side tangent, listening is actually difficult. I think that's why we don't do it very well. It, it really takes a lot of mental energy. Job's friends couldn't be bothered, okay? So the first mistake is that they haven't listened. The second is that they have, def they have defended God's ways falsely. Look, if you would, at verses 7 through 13. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. They are forgers of lies. They speak wickedly on God's behalf. They speak deceitfully on God's behalf. 
Imagine that you go to a doctor. The doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you, but he or she decides to guess. Granted, doctors can't know everything, and they should be willing to admit as much. You don't want them guessing. You don't want them guessing. You don't want them guessing with your life. You don't want someone guessing about your life as Job's friends are doing. They are guessing about his status before God and why God is doing what he's doing in their life. This is what Job's friends are doing. In verses 7 through 11, Job asks a series of questions that boil down to one. Do you feel that in order to defend God in his ways, you'll do it even if you have to lie, even if you have to use deception? And if you use lies and deceptions, how do you think God feels about that? I'm defending the Almighty. I'm going to lie to do it, but I'm going to defend God. Um, You can't justify lying and deception. Certainly not in a cause. Well, no one needs to defend God, but if you're going to defend God, lying and deception has no place. Verse 12, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Wonderful words. You have nothing of value to say. What you have to say has no value whatsoever. So now Job is going to speak. He's going to speak. He wants them to listen because he's going to attempt to get a hearing with God, no matter the consequences. Look at verses 13 through 17. Keep silent and let me speak. Then come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Verses 13 and 17 both times. He wants them to listen. Keep silent and let me speak. Verse 17, listen carefully to my words. In the midst of this is verse number 15, which is probably the best known verse of the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, yet will I trust him. It is interesting that most modern English translations have actually gone in the opposite direction. Only the King James and the NIV and the ESV, but with a footnote, um, one translation has, he will surely slay me, I have no hope. That's, that's not what we hear in the others. There are two, two basic reasons for the difference in translation. First of all, textual, and the other is interpretation, because translation, in fact, involves interpretation. And the argument is circular. They're saying we must accept it in this, this particular translation because it fits in with the flow of the text. The textual evidence actually supports the King James uh, version of this. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Okay. The problem that translators have is that while Job is affirming his faith in God, at the same time he's challenging God. And that seems to be inconsistent. And that's one of the problems people have, I think, with Job 14, is that Job is not consistent. And I would say, really, is is that your reasoning? I mean, how many human beings do you know are consistent moment by moment by moment? I mean, and it, particularly in the deep things of life, 
we tend to go back and forth, back and forth, particularly when we are a time of crisis. Job refuses to give up his faith and hope in God. And yet at the same time, he will challenge God. He will take his life in his own hands. Things would be much easier if he did what his wife said, curse God and die. But Job hangs on. He hangs on and declares his unswerving faith in the Almighty. Many people quote these verses, but few have spoken from the depths of physical pain as Job was experiencing, or psychological despair, social rejection by his friends, and spiritual condemnation. And I think this is what makes these verses all the more powerful. So, let's understand. The journey, the pilgrimage of faith is not a straight line. We, in fact, may take detours. We may backtrack. So we shouldn't expect from Job that he just walks a straight line and comes straight to the truth of what God has to say. Now Job addresses the Almighty. We've seen that in Job's responses, he first addresses his friends and seeks to correct them. And then he turns to God in prayer. But prayers like we're not really familiar with. I mean, he prays in a way that seems rather strange to us. I told you earlier in this series, we need to be ready at any moment to hear Job jump from having a conversation with his friends to having a conversation with God, the language of prayer. In his prayer, Job expresses what one writer has called a kind of upside-down trust. That is, he trusts that God can handle anything and everything that we have to say that it is God alone, certainly not his friends, but it is God alone who can answer the cries of Job's heart, if any answer is possible. And this is what separates, I think, genuine, authentic crisis of faith from something that's rather self-centered, and it's all about me. So, what Job does is he says to God, let's talk. Let's pretend we're in court, but I have two conditions. First of all, you need to get rid of all this pain. You know, all this that I'm suffering, take that away so I can actually talk like a rational human being. And secondly, I will set the agenda. Both are rather presumptuous. Look, if you would, in verse 18. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Only grant me these two things, O God, and I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. So there it is in verse 21. Withdraw your hand. But I, I can't show up in court the condition I'm in. And second of all, um, I will speak and you answer me. Assuming that God has accepted his conditions, which is a big assumption, Job presents his carefully outlined case. Because if you look at verse 18, now that I have prepared my case, so now, 21, or 23, he begins, How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? What's going on? Why are you harassing me? Why have I become the focal point 
of your anger. And now Job breaks it up into three parts, his past, his present, and an anticipated future. Verse 26, for you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit, inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. This echoes what David said in Psalm 25, verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. And verse 26, it's like, really? You're, you're dragging up all the crazy stuff I did when I was young? That, that's what this is about? I'm suffering now. I'm on the garbage heap of my town, covered with sores because of what I did when I was a kid? Job seems to think it is unfair for God to penalize him in the present for things he did in the past. And then he turns to the present. Here the argument is different. And here his argument is not what he's done, but it's like, hey, my life, life is so brief. Why are you, why are you making the short time I have so miserable? Verse 28. So man wastes away like something rotten like a garment eaten by moths. The chapter divisions are artificial. It actually continues in chapter 14. Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shadow he does not endure. Do you fix your eye on such a one? Will you bring him before you in judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired man. A side note, um, John Schreiner has set these verses to music. And I, I hear the music every time I read them. Man is born of woman. Um, full of a few days and full of trouble. And... Job's basically saying, hey, let me, you know, let me just put in my time. It's miserable. It's terrible. Why are you going to harass me with judgment? My time here is short. It's full of trouble. Can you just not leave me alone? And like a hireling, like someone who's hired, let me punch the clock. And when it's time to punch out, then take me. But now he moves to the future. Verse 7 at least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea, or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, So man lies down and does not rise till heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. In comparing himself to a tree, Job says there's more hope for a tree. You cut it down and it may in fact sprout new shoots again. It's a wonderful picture of regeneration in God's creation. But this doesn't seem to be the case with human beings, Job is saying. We put in our time, and when it's over, we lay down, and that's it. There is seemingly no hope for the future. Or is there? Look at verse 13. If only you would hide me in the grave, 
and conceal me until your anger has passed. If only you would set me, or set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. In these verses, we hear words of hope. And it continues in the verses that follow, but it's wonderful. I will wait, you know, when it's time, when it's my time, when I've punched in for the last time and I'm dead and I'm laid in the ground. I will wait for, I will wait there for my change to come. Seeming to indicate that Job is thinking of resurrection. Verse 15, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. See, what Job longs for and anticipates is not some type of paradise, but rather a personal relationship that is marked by conversation, that is marked by grace and forgiveness. These are not things we've heard from his friends. They're all about cause and effect. We hear faith in Job that, yeah, death is in the cards. That's what's going to happen to him. But something wonderful else may happen, that there will be a change and that God will raise him up, that God will long for the creature he has made, a creature whose sins he has forgiven. Wonderful words of faith. But then in verse 18, once again, Job is plunged into despair. But as a mountain erodes and crumbles, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all, and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. If his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they are brought low, he does not see it. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. We're like, Job, we're a bit confused here because you just said some wonderful things about renewal, about waiting for your change. And then, and then you say that, in fact, God has destroyed your hope. God destroys man's hope. Why aren't you consistent? Faith one moment, despair the next. Well, Job has lost his family and his friends, and it appears that he has lost his God. Seemingly, Job is alone. And in that loneliness, there are moments of hope that this might work out, but then there are longer moments of despair. What's wrong with Job? Do we really need to ask this question? What are our expectations of him? Do we expect that he will be consistent, that he will walk that straight line in his pilgrimage? I think what we hear from Job is entirely human. He has lost his family, his children have died, his wife may have turned against him, his friends certainly have, and now God will not answer him. God does not speak. I think Job is entirely human, and we should appreciate that. As we go through Job, you might 
be saying, Damon, I, I don't think I have friends like Job's friends. I think that my friends will stick by me no matter what happens. And I would answer that you might say, no, I, I don't have such friends. But I would suggest that you do, at least one, one such friend, like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And that friend is you. As you go through life, and not catastrophes like Job is, not health issues like Job, but just setbacks, major, minor, things don't work out the way you think you should, they should. And then as a child of God, you set to calculating. What have I done wrong? Or what can I do right so that God will do, in fact, what I want him to do? And I would argue that this is, a, this is particularly true in the modern age, that we are much more calculating. I mean, I think we, we fit in with Job's friends. We are much more transactional in our thinking. And the result is there is a sterility about our Christian faith, a dryness, it's arid, because it's all about calculation. We are, not, we are exactly like Job's friends. We have not thought for a moment of God's grace. Because I would argue that God's grace is incalculable. If God gave us what we deserve, we'd be toast. I mean, let's admit it. So when something happens in our life and then we begin to sort of you know, punch the numbers, crunch the numbers. Why, why is this happening to me? Did it something I did yesterday? Is it something I did a week ago? I mean, is it an action? Is it a thought? Um, this is not to justify sin or to say, don't worry about it. But what I'm asking for is that we would reject the theology of Zophar, of Bildad and Eliphaz and get rid of calculation. When our hearts condemn us, it's because our heart has put in the numbers and we've come up short. Well, guess what, folks? We will always come up short. The Christian faith is not about the numbers working out. The Christian faith is about God's grace. His grace which cannot be calculated. And as these four men sit around in the town dump, three of them berating the fourth one, the fourth one, I think, has a sense of it, but not as he should. The other three have no sense of grace. These are graceless men. And I would say they, they are pictures of the church today. The gospel is presented in a transactional manner. We seem to think we have the answers for everything because we've figured it out. And we've lost sight that in fact, grace is greater than all our sins. In the hymn that we sang today, Jesus, lover of my soul, um, plenteous grace with thee is found grace to cover all my sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep me pure within.
Thou of life, the fountain art, freely let me take of thee. Spring thou up within my heart, rise in all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, it seems that only fallen human beings like us can take something so wonderful, so rich, so alive, a relationship with you, your wonderful grace and mercy in our lives, and we can turn it into a dead theology, into a matter of numbers, of calculation. And like Job's friends, we become dry and angry, perhaps even bitter. If we would, for a moment, sit down and think of where we would be apart from your grace, perhaps our thinking would change. Your grace is greater than our sins. You're gracious to us every moment of every day. You sustain us and keep us. And as we walk in our pilgrimage of faith, like Job, may we not lose sight of your grace. I fear that some have sat down on the side of the road. Their faith has become dead, or at least dry, arid, lifeless. In the pilgrimage of faith, we do not walk alone. The Lord Jesus is with us every step of the way. And you, our Father, are so gracious to us. May we not lose sight of that. I thank you for this day, the first day of a new week, that we could come together and worship you. May your spirit be with us, and we know that he will be in the coming week. May we be conscious of it, aware of it. And remember how gracious you are. Keep each one of us safe, I pray, in the coming days. I pray this through Jesus. Amen.